I'm Michelle Olivier, and you're listening to Hey, I Want Your Job, the podcast that looks at amazing jobs and what it takes to get them. Welcome to Hey, I Want Your Job. And this week, Amy, I really don't want your job. Not even a little bit, actually. But I'm really glad that you have it. Um, Dr. Amy, what is your job? I am a cognitive psychologist for the largest network of brain training centers in the world, and I conduct brain training research. So when I think of brain training, I think of that game on like the Nintendo DS from the 90s because, you know, I'm a nerd and that's my age group, right? So I don't think that that's the brain training that you necessarily mean. Like you're not giving people video games and telling them to go for it. So tell us a little bit more. What does brain training mean? So the brain training that I research is human delivered brain training. So yes, many people think of brain games um, when, when I say the word brain training. And there are lots and lots of brain games out there. And those are great for um, stimulating um, cognition. And so I have nothing against brain games at all. They're super fun and there's no downside to playing them at all. Um, my work is focused on one-on-one human delivered activities that directly target individual cognitive skills like memory, processing speed, attention, reasoning, visual and auditory processing. And those tasks are complex and targeted and intense, paced by a metronome. We use timers and hands-on activities. Um, And so that's what I mean when I say I study brain training. So this conversation could not be more timely for me just as a personal human being, because you specialize not only in brain training, but brain training with tiny humans. And I have two tiny humans one of whom we are currently getting evaluated for ADHD. And so we are jumping all of the hoops and girl, there's a lot of hoops. There are. I'm just saying so many hoops. And it's terrifying because, you know, my husband and I had a long conversation and we are both children of the eighties. And so growing up, so my husband is like hella ADHD and nobody noticed because it didn't manifest in behavioral, like behavioral twitches and not being able to sit down and the way that people thought about it back in the Mm eighties. I am crazy town dyslexic. Nobody caught it until I was at university and my senior year of university at a snooty patootie school was the first time anybody caught it. And my whole childhood, I was told that I was lazy, all that kind of stuff for not writing the spelling words down correctly from the board. So we're aware of how it should not go. And we're trying to do better for our kids. But um, my oldest is five. And we're trying to walk that line between we don't want to have him overly labeled too early. We're also aware kids are kids. And sometimes they don't pay attention because they would rather play Pokemon, not because something is wrong with their brain. Exactly. Um, so all of that talking about me, <laughs> setting you up now to tell me about you and <laughs> when you're working with kids like that in a family with 
that has to be a very normal family situation for you to hear and, and for your research and that sort of thing. How do you work with families in that situation? What ages do you think it's appropriate to start looking at those kind of behaviors and, and making diagnoses on kids? Um, and and if you can throw in some tips on how to how to jump the hoops better, uh, I'll, I'll take all of it, Amy. That was like a multi-part question, comment, conversation, wasn't it? It was. I know. Yeah. Totally set up for ultimate success. None of that set you up for failure at all. <laughs> Not at all. No. <laughs> Uh, you're testing my memory um, <laughs> and attention, which, by the way, I am an ADHD warrior myself. And um, I mine was in the inattentive type of ADHD, and I fell through the cracks as well because I was not hyperactive, bouncing off the walls. So I was diagnosed um, in college. So understand how mm-hmm. how those of us who were graduating from high school in the 80s might have gotten missed. <laughs> So one thing that I tell parents is that we have this tendency in our modern day culture to apply pathology to anything that seems like it might not be normal or is a difficult behavior. So when we think of normal behaviors, normal behaviors exist on a spectrum. And so what some people think is hyperactivity might just be exuberance and lots of energy. And so we don't want to uh, be too quick about slapping a label on um, a normal behavior that's just more to the extreme end of the spectrum and requires a little bit more redirection or entertainment for that matter. Um, Because we can't expect a four or five-year-old to entertain themselves all of the time. And so our frustration as parents, right, manifests as there must be something wrong with my child because my child is expecting all of this attention. Yes, that's developmentally appropriate for your child to expect that kind of attention. So um, is five too young for a diagnosis of ADHD? It's not, but unless it is such overt hyperactivity and impulsivity um, and inattention that you're seeing in multiple areas of your child's life, home, school, restaurants, friends' houses, then maybe you want to say it's time to get evaluated. And, you know, some people say, oh, the earlier the better so that we can get on it. Again, sometimes you want to wait and see if it's just an extreme end of normal Um, and lifestyle changes that you can make that would benefit every child is never the wrong choice, right? So are you optimizing sleep? Are you optimizing nutrition? Are you working on um, self-awareness, stress management, um, self-control type things with your child? Okay, so that's one that's one answer to the question. Um, in terms a good of one for what it's worth. So okay, you're doing okay. great. Okay, great. <laughs> um, in terms of my work, we do work with five-year-olds with ADHD. And what what we see with ADHD is a disconnect between the amygdala, which controls our emotions, and the prefrontal cortex, which is the CEO of our brain, right? That's our logical reasoning part of our brain. Um, And so we see abnormal connectivity between those two areas of the brain in ADHD. 
And so when we can strengthen those connections, sometimes by default, we see improvement in behaviors because there's that emotional dysregulation that we see in ADHD. And so when you have greater executive function, um, sometimes you can get um, get a hold of some of that dysregulation of emotion. We did a really neat study with over 4,000 people from ages four through 40 um, who had ADHD, and we created cognitive profiles of those um, of those people using a traditional IQ test. And what we found was attention was not the weakest skill in a disorder called attention deficit disorder, right? Um, working memory, long-term memory, and processing speed were actually more of a problem than attention. Attention was pretty average. And so when we think about what do we do when our child has an ADHD diagnosis, if we choose a treatment or an intervention that only targets attention, we're missing the boat. Like we're missing the opportunity to remediate those other three areas that are actually more deficient than attention in ADHD. Um, and so that's why my work in brain training is so exciting because we can target those skills in addition to attention, in addition to those other skills. Okay. Yeah. So I have questions. I know you yeah. ask them. I love questions. So the moment that we decided this is more than just being five. And trust me, there is a lot of it that is just being five. Like we are very aware. We just have a strong-willed five-year-old and that's exactly what he's supposed to be and great. Um, but the thing that made us feel like this is more is that we would say, okay, look at my face, where are my eyes? And he would look at my eyes and then he's like, you could, and you could see him fighting to look and see him fighting to give attention and he couldn't do it. And then he would get upset and be like, mama, I just can't. I'm like, okay, all right, buddy, I got you. If I give you this thing to play with, can you hear me? I can try, mama, I can try. <laughs> so to our mind, that was like, that was a really clear indicator that this was, he was being frustrated by something not that he wasn't able to control things the way that he wanted to control them, which was how, therefore, we thought it was time to get tested. Is that a, any kind of a reasonable standard, or did we just make that up one time, and we're like, you're like, oh, bless you, but no. No, I mean, if you're noticing that your child is trying really hard and wants to do something and is frustrated with his own inability to do something that we typically would think a five-year-old could do, um, then yeah, investigate, find out what was going on for sure. Um, my first question would be, did you also have his hearing examined? Yep. Perfect okay. hearing. Yep. So, and it happens all of the time. And it's also like, he also has really bad impulse control. He wants to hug everything, everything. And like, you can see him like literally fighting himself because he keeps getting in trouble at like camp and school or touching, which sounds really like, I understand why it's called, but it does sound like it's something really aggressive and it's not. He just likes people. And so he wants to go give him a, a, a hug or be tactile when he's talking to sure. him, but also boundaries. Right? <laughs> so everybody's right. like, Hey man, we got to keep our body to ourselves. And he's like, okay, 
I got this. And like, he puts his hands in his pockets and like, he rips out his pockets, trying to keep them in. Like, and he's just really frustrated and he gets really upset about it. And to me, that was like, okay, if he's feeling upset, we definitely need to get him help because, you know, I don't want him struggling with things if we could have helped with them. Yeah. So those are things that sounds like were reasonable <laughs> on my part. But what are things that other parents, if you if you have a five-year-old and you're thinking, maybe we need some help, what are the kinds of things that are indicators that this is genuinely ADHD and not just a five-year-old wanting mommy's attention all the time? Sure. Well, so let me clarify. I'm a cognitive psychologist, not a clinical yeah. psychologist. Right. So um, I'm on the intervention end, right, right, rather than the diagnostic end um, of ADHD. Sure. But, but you yes. see it either way. I get it. Absolutely. Yeah. So like I said, when you're seeing um, a combination of inattention, impulsivity, um, hyperactivity, sometimes... Um, and emotion dysregulation. It's very interesting to me, and I'm kind of getting off on a tangent and I'll come back. It's very interesting to me that emotion dysregulation, which is present in what we think more than 70% of children with ADHD, that inability to regulate their emotions is not one of the diagnostic criteria for ADHD. Right. And I'm not alone in that you know, confusion. Why is that, why is that not part of the diagnostic process? But it is a red flag when coupled with those other three behaviors or lack of behaviors in. So, um, yes. So impulsivity, hyperactivity, um, inattention and emotional dysregulation across more than one area of their lives investigated. So then let's bring it back to what is your wheelhouse. As a parent with a kid who is probably ADHD, one of the things that we've heard from other people is that they assume that the only option is medication. Like, why would you want to drug your kid? I'm like, who said I want to drug my kid? I never said that. I just said that we should find out if he has ADHD. And people are like, well, the only thing they can do about it is drugs. I have a feeling that you're about to tell me that that couldn't be further from the truth. So other than drugging your children, what are some things, some examples of things that going to somebody like yourself can actually get for the kid and and what does that kind of look like? Sure. Well, first, let me say that we know, or at least the best hypothesis for what's happening in the ADHD brain is a problem with norepinephrine and dopamine, which are two neurotransmitters. And so we do know that the reason that we give kids with ADHD a drug is to help those neurotransmitters function better. So it's not a shot in the dark to say, hey, this is why we medicate kids with ADHD, right? So, I mean, it's a reasonable, you know, assumption that if I give my kid with ADHD a stimulant medication, then it may help those neurotransmitters function better. Um, so I'm not anti-drug at all. And there are some children who will will not respond to behavioral interventions um, as well as they will to drugs. So I, I never say take it off the table. Okay. Fair, fair. But yes, there are other interventions um, that absolutely parents should consider. And so brain training is one of them. 
Um, lifestyle changes are super important. Even if you do choose drugs or brain training, you still want to make those lifestyle changes. Um, and so, you know, there's lots of research on um, omegas and how they help the brain function better. Um, lots of research on diet. Um, I'm, I am a fan of uh, reducing sugar because sugar causes inflammation in the body. And if the body's inflamed, so is the brain. So anything that makes it harder for the child, right? Let's remove that barrier. And so if we can lower sugar intake, that helps remove one of those obstacles, right? That inflammation in the brain. Um, you know, and there's some evidence to suggest that grains uh, create issues as well um, for neurodevelopmental disorders. And so if you can reduce grains and focus on proteins, fruits, vegetables, and nuts, um, you may see an improvement um, based on the research that we're seeing. So on that note, I have a question, yeah. clarifying question on the sugar. Um, my kids don't get refined sugar, um, but they eat a shit ton of fruit. Um, and obviously a nutritionist would tell you sugars, you know, from a caloric and how we pro your, you know, pancreas deals with it, sugar is sugar. But I know that different sugars behave differently with all kinds of other ways within the body. So is it specifically refined sugar? Is it all refined sugar or is it, you know, the more intense the sugar, so like high fructose, high you know, corn syrup is worse than table sugar, but none of it is good. Is it, you know, high sugar fruits should also be avoided? Like where, what type of sugar, what volume, how do you know as a parent, if that's something you want to do? Yeah, I think a lot of it's trial and error in terms of fruit sugar. Um, so personally, um, from the research that I've read and the kids that I've worked with, I recommend cutting out refined artificial sugars or refined natural cane sugars, but in processed right. foods, right? So um, that's where I would start. Fruits are really good for you. They have lots of great nutritional value. And so um, but my, my four-year-old ate a whole seedless watermelon the other day, a whole like watermelon at four because that's how my kids roll with fruit. They ate three pounds of mango the other night for dinner. So you have to like, <laughs> everything should be in moderation. My children do not understand moderation when it comes to fruit because that's their one sweet thing, right? Like they don't, sure. they don't get sugar. Like on their birthday, they get a cupcake. They're like, oh my God. Yeah. I think a whole watermelon is a lot of sugar. <laughs> <laughs> It's a lot of a lot of things, Amy. A lot of a lot of things. Yeah. He peed so many times. It was ridiculous. Like, <laughs> was, I'm like, we, we left him outside. We turned around like, Britt, where's the watermelon? He was like, it was delicious, mama. I was like, the whole thing? Uh, yes, mama. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Okay. So. Refined sugar is the consideration, but perhaps a little more moderation than this mom manages to achieve on all sugars, including fruit. Yes? Yeah. Moderation is the key for sure. <laughs> and that's not to say that treats aren't okay. Like I like to follow the 90-10 rule. So 90% of the time, follow a low sugar, low grain diet and focus on 
proteins, fruits, vegetables, and nuts. Um, but yes, those treats, you have to have birthday cake. Well, and I, you know, this is definitely squirreling out from what we were talking about, but I, I'm sure you have opinions as well. I've always felt like that when you set up, you can never have cake, that those are the kids that later in life just eat cake constantly. Right. Because Absolutely. now you've created a weird relationship with this like thing I can never have. And so now I must have it all the time. So if it's normal, but not the norm, if that makes sense. Right. Absolutely. I mean, you're like, we're going to make healthy choices most of the time, right? You create that culture in your house. You create that culture in your kitchen that it's not a taboo to have cake, right? It's that, you know, we save that for special occasions. Aren't we excited that we're going to get to have that on your birthday? You know, we're going to make healthy choices during the week and, you know, maybe you get a treat on Saturday, right? Just follow like that 90-10 rule so that then they get excited about it. But, it, but you haven't made it something that seems bad. Yeah. We talk about foods that our tongues like and foods that our bodies like. So there are some foods that only our tongue, in our whole body, only our tongue likes that food. Candy, only our tongue likes. Makes our teeth hurt, makes our body feel yuck. But man, does our tongue like that food. And so the kids will come in like, oh, Mama, I had a rough day. My body wants some good food. Well, cool. We got you. Broccoli, the broccoli is the one food that for them, they're like, no, broccoli. Brussels sprouts, check. Sushi, love it. They're big on curry. They're big on every other kind of fruit or vegetable they've ever met in their life. But for some reason, poor old broccoli gets demonized in our house. Yeah, but yeah. just blend it up in your uh, spaghetti sauce. Like no, puree it up. It as your... a threat, Amy. It's fine. I'm just like, oh, broccoli sandwiches? No. Can I have asparagus instead? Yes, you may. Asparagus is delicious, and mommy prefers it anyway. There you go. That's there you go. They're allowed to have something they hate. That's fine. They can't hate everything, but they can have one. That's okay. Yeah. So that's anyway, I squirreled out on you. I apologize. Yeah, so that's okay. Back at your ranch. Uh, yes. the <laughs> we were talking about lifestyle changes. We were. Okay. Sleep is super important. And so I don't think that we... I don't think we put enough emphasis on the importance of sleep um, for our bodies, for our brains. The neuroscientist on our research team, she talks about sleeping as putting your brain through a car wash. The sleep process actually cleanses the brains of neurotoxins that you know happen during the day is just a part of regular neurotransmitter function. And and so we need that. And so anything that we can do to make the brain work a little bit better makes it easier for the child. And, and you talk about how your child struggles to, you know, to, to pay attention, right, is a physical struggle. So anything that we can do to make it easier, we should do. So now I'm going to say something a little not expected. Um, but a lot of the success that we can have with kids who have ADHD is um, working on how we communicate with them and parenting through a lens of connection. And so if we can, before we open our mouths, if we can say, is what comes out of my mouth something that's going to strengthen the connection with my child? Or is it going to weaken the connection with my child? 
if we can choose only the things that will strengthen the connection with our child. And that doesn't mean that you can't say no. It's all about how you say it, right? If we can learn to communicate through that lens where I like I need to have a strong connection with my child because my child needs to feel connected, um, we can really move the needle on some of those behaviors because then you're the safe place. You're the place where you're not being, you know, your child's not being bullied, not being teased, not feeling like a failure, right? Because we know kids with neurodevelopmental disorders frequently feel that way. Uh, I think that's, yeah, I, that definitely sums up my kiddo. He's very much like, mama, I I don't want to be, but he's very concerned about being bad. Like you're not bad. You just have a hard time listening and keeping your body to yourself. And sometimes you make mommy crazy, but your job is to make mommy crazy sometimes. So that just means you're really good at your job. And he's like, okay, I can take that. (laughs) So I love that with the sleep thing. I think that's, um, I think that adults are not good at it for ourselves. And because right. we tend not to be good at it for ourselves, we forget for our kids. So my kids get about 11 hours of sleep every night, theoretically. Now, sometimes they wake up a little early and they wake up the whole house. And then definitely that's one of those want to kill my children, five o'clock in the morning. This morning at 5 a.m., they were up um, and we heard screaming coming from upstairs. And we were like, oh my God, somebody is hurt. We go running up. Nope. They were having a live action Pokemon bot- battle between the two of them. And one of them was some Banshee Pokemon and his attack was a scream attack. I was like, oh my giddy aunt. <laughs> this is not a thing <laughs> at 5.30 in the morning on a, on a Thursday. Are you killing me? What is happening? But so we do try really hard. Is when you talk about sleep for kids. Some of the studies that I have seen that my doctors talked to me about for the for the boys is that parents focus on that big block of sleep at night, mostly because it means we get an evening after they go down. And so that's very like motivating. Um, but that actually they need a good block of at night and then they need to have naps in the day and that continuing to have that brain rest in the day is really important for them. What is your thought on that? And what is your, what's your experience and thought on that? For what age are you? Littles. So 10 and below. 10 and below. So I, I have, I have not seen research that suggests that children over five need naps. Well, there you go. So there are, there may be some, but I haven't read any. Um, So it must not be mainstream research. Um, I mean, every child is unique. And so, I mean, if, if your child is so exhausted, if your seven, eight, nine-year-old child is so exhausted during the day that they feel like they need a nap, then we need to look at what's happening at night um, and what their overall week is looking like. Because that, to me, screams overscheduled or stressed. Okay. So when we talk about kids getting enough sleep, what does that mean then? So is it a certain number of hours per night that is what they need? And if so, what are those numbers per hour? Per night. So I'm not a sleep expert. Nope. Um, yeah. But you probably make recommendations to moms all the time about yeah. their kids. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, nine or 10 hours a night is, you know, pretty much where you want your target to be. If your kid is able to get 11 hours, that's fantastic. We that's really fantastic. hope he does. We they, Bedtime is 730. 
and they're allowed to make noise at 630. <laughs> we do not police. We are out of the business of policing what happens between 730 and 630 because we found that down that path lied madness. And if they want to wake up, wake themselves up for 20 minutes in the middle of the night and exchange stuffed animals, I do not need to hear all that on my, on a monitor. That's fine. <laughs> They're fine. Well, sure. I mean, then that interrupts your sleep. Right. And so we're not talking about an infant. No, definitely not. Believe me. Yeah. Infants don't make nearly that much noise. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe your infants didn't, but uh, I had one who did. Oh, so but it's two of them, and they've added jumping to the screaming. And infants just don't have the body mass. That is true. <laughs> Make the thump thump that goes to Amy. Yes. Or the other day when they picked up their mattresses and were jousting with mattresses. Yeah. Because your kids have some energy. They have no shortage of energy, and they're freakishly strong, as denoted by picking up mattresses and whacking each other with them. So yes, it's, it's a lot here. So, um, that has all been really helpful advice in terms of lifestyle changes and that sort of thing. I'm really interested about, I've always been a big Montessori fan. My kids both grew up in Montessori and one of their big tenets is about not overstimulating kids. So very neutral decor, not all of like the loud colors or you know stuff everywhere but to let the kids focus that just organically strikes me as something that would be helpful for a kid with something like ADHD but is it really that big of a deal what is your thought on that well yeah there are two camps um we know that young well we know that infants need bright colors because they can't uh, discriminate among those soft colors at all, right? And so then what do you do? At what age do you say, okay, we no longer need the big, bold colors. Let's go down to to soft colors. I think it is helpful for quiet time. It is helpful for nap time. Um, and so when you're looking at early childhood environments, right, the less there is to stimulate them when you want them to um, be resting, the better. But in reality, most rest time takes place in the same areas that playtime take place in. And we know that we want to create inviting environments and we want to create um, invitations to learning by having materials that are beautiful and exciting looking and inviting. And so sometimes muted colors aren't as exciting looking for children. Um, I, I had this conversation. Um, so I actually, my master's degree is in early childhood education. So I actually was a preschool teacher and um, early childhood specialist before I became a psychologist. And I had this conversation over and over again about the dress up area, right, of a classroom, the dramatic play area of a classroom. Why do we put like these brown blazers for boys to dress up in when, how exciting is that? Like really? I mean, the, I get the idea was that they wanted to, you know, mimic being the dad or whatever. So, but it's brown. That, that can't be nearly as inviting as, you know, a purple hat would be. So I, I probably in the camp um, that would say um, bright colors are cheerful and exciting. Um, and I'm okay with those. 
I I love it. My kids' bedroom is um we took the approach of um just get them used to all of the noise. All yeah, the time. absolutely. That's so, the world. Yeah. So their room is rainbow, literally it's a rainbow. And they um one of the one of my favorite pieces of of unsolicited advice that I got when I was a new mom was don't play music for them to sleep. Play something that has voices. So play stories or play, if you're going to play music, have it be ones that, that has lyrics. So there's like actual voices and change in there. Like you will be so grateful later when your kid will sleep through people talking. And I was like, well, that is genius. I'm in for that. And so that is absolutely, we got, um, we got books on, on tape. And so they, they went to sleep listening to the complete works of Roald Dahl. <laughs> As for advice, Stephen Fry for most other youth. But it, I mean, they're great sleepers now. They will sleep through just about anything. And I do credit that sort of environmental thing with that, right? That I know that there's been work done that says that when you create a pitch black environment with no sound and a white noise machine to put your angel to sleep at night, you've also created a world in which those are the things required for your angel to go to sleep at night. Right. And that's not realistic, is it? I mean, no. it, so right. in fact, that's part of our brain training philosophy that we train um, kids in big open rooms with different learning stations. And we have metronomes ticking, we have voices talking. And even for ADHD kids who you would think it's kind of counterintuitive, right? We typically think, oh, well, we need to put them in a quiet space so that they can concentrate. Well, that's not the world. That is not the world. And so we train them right in the middle of all of the activities so that we can train their sustained and, and selective and divided attention skills um, so that they can learn to kind of tune out the distractions because that's what that's what happens with the ADHD brain. It's not a lack of attention. It's that we pay attention to everything. Like every stimulus is of equal importance. And so we have to consciously learn, wait a minute, this is the stimulus that I need to be focused on. And the others, I'm going to try and mute out a little bit while it's going on around me. And sleep is the exact same way that, I mean, when you've got a new mom who makes you tiptoe around and whisper when their infant is napping is creating a child that is going to expect quiet for life. Yeah. And I have friends who are moms who made those choices and whew, traveling with those moms is a lot. You're like, oh my God, now we have to wait. Nope. Nope. Still not silent enough. Okay. <laughs> Great. Yeah. yeah. So, and no. the stress, the stress involved in it that. Is. Yeah, right. it is. It's so much like there's so much of all of this that is stress. And I think that I, as somebody who you know, has two kids and a business and dogs and life and like most people, right? Like anytime I hear lifestyle change, I immediately, my knee-jerk response before any of the words have left your mouth is, ugh, pain in my ass, here it comes. And I like, I also understand that you're not wrong, Amy. <laughs> but I'm like, oh, wait, now what do I have to do? The list of things that I need a lifestyle change about is lengthy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but let's go back to your original question. Mm -hmm. What can I do if I don't want to drug my kid? Yep. So you got to pick, right? Like 
most most parents are looking for the magic pill, yeah. right? Just give me the pill because that's the easiest thing to do. But you're saying, what can I do besides the pill? Okay, I'm well, those things are going to take some effort. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I totally get it. I'm not opposed to pill, but it is very interesting that going through this process, I have had that has been the overwhelming response from people is, oh my God, I can't believe you would drug your child. I'm like, boy, did you just go from zero to hero in a heartbeat? What? All I said was that we're filling in some forms to see if he has ADHD. That was the whole thing that came out of my mouth. And then you now have like my kids stoned and I, uh, you know, high on Ritalin or something. That. All I said was the beginning. I think it ADHD is one of those diagnoses that I think people have really strong and highly erroneous opinions about what is involved, about what fixing it looks like, and all of that. Where, like, you live with it yourself, you deal with it every single day. Where do you think all of this comes from? And how do you deal with that? Like just the emotionality around surrounding all of this? You know, I, I, I'm not sure I even have an answer for that. I mean, everybody has an opinion about parenting, right? Every parent has an opinion about parenting. You know, when and you non-parents, me, don't forget those, the, uh, the non-parents who also want to tell Well, you that's true parent. too, right? But you know, <laughs> the, the minute you announce that you're pregnant, the advice starts. Well, when I was pregnant, oh, and then once the baby's born, you need to sleep when the baby sleeps, right? You get all of this advice and it's always based on someone's personal experience and typically a bad experience that they may have had, right? And everyone's different. And, the, you know, the thing about ADHD too, you know, that, that doesn't get talked about enough is that, so there is not one single cause of ADHD, so it is a collection of symptoms that manifest in a similar way, but there are multiple reasons why a child might develop ADHD. So you can't just walk in and say, well, here's the here's what you should do when you don't know what's happening behind the scenes in the brain of that child. Um, but everybody has an opinion. It's human nature. And it, oh yeah, it's just, Read I'm, research. A lot, I'm a Read lot crasser than I think you are. And so I am of the opinion that opinions are a lot like assholes. Um, everybody has, everybody has one. Yeah. Most people stink. Absolutely. So yeah, no, I totally, and it is, it is amazing. Um, I know also that I've seen amongst my, my friend circle and all of that, that there's, a, can be a lot of friction, especially when you have co-parenting situations between, between households. Um, so one of my closest friends has a 16 year old who is ADHD. Dad has no interest in the lifestyle changes that are needed. And so mom's like, screw it. Because if it's only going to be the percentage of the time he's with me, it doesn't actually do any good. What is your advice for people in those situations when they're trying to create the consistency that they need and have like... How do you, do you work with, cause I know you also do counseling. So is that, do you also work with parents to help them create those cohesive plans so that they do work together for the benefit of the kid? Absolutely. And I think, 
Um, it's interesting that you brought that up because I think sometimes it takes hearing it from a third party, um, you know, for that second parent who's resisting um, that intervention or lifestyle change or whatever it is you know, to hear, hey, these are the benefits of doing this. This is what your child needs. And you all, all need to be on the same page in order for it to be successful. Sometimes it takes a third party like a counselor um, to be the one to present that idea. And, um, and so, yes, it's one of those, hey, um, you know, our daughter's counselor has recommended that we all attend a family counseling session together. Um, and, you know, would really like to get that on the books. And then the counselor can mediate that, that whole process. Does it work 100% of the time? Of course not. But will it, the time. will it increase the chances of success over just expecting divorced parents um, to work that out between the two of them? Um, it does increase the chances of success for sure. Or to have the pediatrician do it. Mm -hmm. A counselor has more time though. Sure. Right. The pediatrician's got 15 minutes with you, whereas you can have, you know, 50 to 90 minutes um, with a counselor. With a counselor. Now, this is a little more extreme, but I've also seen it held up in courts. So if it is a medically necessary um, treatment plan, right? So the physician or the clinical psychologist or whoever it is that's in charge or managing the care of this child, um, you know, can write this report for the judge. And I've seen that work. But man, nobody wants to go there if you don't ask. No, of course they don't. And I think the problem is so much of it is so situational. Like, okay, so the judge decrees that you have to follow the physician's report. And one of the things the physician's report says is that you have to have consistent instruction and a, a consistent, you know, system for something because that makes it easier for them to adjust. Who defines consistent? Sure. And who polices that, right? Like that, and that's the parent who wants it is the one right. who ends up. But you're not there. At, you know what I mean? When they're at dad's house, they're still at dad's house. Sure. So, yeah. So it, it's so hard. Does that happen a lot? Or, I mean, I would imagine that by the time they see you, there's agreement we need treatment <laughs> or they yeah. wouldn't be there. So I would think that would be less of the case, but I mean, not potentially none of the case. Do you see it very often or just very occasionally? Which, going to court? No, no, no. Parents oh. who aren't in agreement around how to do treatment because they oh. have households. Well, sure. I see parents not in agreement even when they are in living in the same household and happily married, right? Like, parents have different opinions about how should we discipline our children? How should, you know... Yeah, obviously. I oh, have my husband and we're in the same house. Like, yes, exactly. That's what <laughs> I'm saying. And so, yeah. I mean, we see th those, those are the things where a counselor, a family counselor would absolutely be beneficial because then both parents can say, here's why I think it should be this way. What are the advantages? You can kind of lay it all out there, you know, and what can we compromise on? You know, what, what really should we be doing? What is the counselor suggesting is the best thing for the child? Or what should we try on a trial basis? 
I like to make suggestions that are temporary, right? Let's try it for two weeks. See if you notice a difference in your child's behavior. It feels less. Oh my gosh, everything's better. <laughs> what a great suggestion. <laughs> you fix everything, Amy. <laughs> exactly. You're a genius. <laughs> so let's say that I get my kid is diagnosed with ADHD and I, I want to come to the brain training program and I schedule an appointment with Dr. Amy. What as a parent, what do I, what should I expect is going to happen? What is that going to look like? Yeah. So in our centers, um, we do a cognitive assessment um, at the first visit. Um, and it, so it's game-like testing. Um, so we evaluate performance on those individual cognitive skills. And then um, then the parent would have a um, an appointment to come back and review those results um, and then talk about program recommendations. You know, you mentioned that you struggled with dyslexia. And so we have a reading program that's delivered through a brain training approach that can also be part of a suggested intervention, right? Because sometimes we see that comorbidity, like not only are we struggling with attention and memory and processing speed, but also with reading skills. So it would just be based on, you know, testing what recommendation our, you know, our center and their assessment coordinator would recommend our centers. We're all over the world. So is it more, um, is it more come in and talk about things and fill in a form or does the, you actually do the training there? So they come in and they're actually going to engage with the, the games and the toys and do all of that uh, under the, the watchful eye of the professional. And do mom and dad get involved or is it like I drop my kid off and I sit on the sideline and play on my phone while you help them? Like, what does it look like? Yes. <laughs> all of that. All of that. Yes. So, um, so, some parents want to just drop their child off and have the cognitive trainers handle the intervention themselves, right? Either they need a break or they don't have the type of relationship with their child that um, would allow for that coaching scenario to be successful. Um, so we have options where, yes, we have a program where it's called the pro program where the professional does all of the training. So, you know, three days a week, you bring your kid in, sign them in, drop them off, and you come back an hour and a half later and pick them up and they've been trained. Voila. Um, but we also have a partner program because some parents really want to be involved in that process. And so the trainer will teach the parent several procedures to work on at home for homework. And so they do part of that cognitive training, brain training at home with their child. So I'll give you an example. Um, my youngest child, wicked case of ADHD, um, coming in, I said, okay, we got to get him some started on brain training. And I, of course, am the expert, so I'm going to do it at home. And after two weeks said, um, no, you can have him. <laughs> like, just realized that that dynamic wasn't going to work between me and, and my child. And so I was happy to just drop him off at the center and have them train him. And it worked out beautifully. I love the idea of drop-off training. <laughs> Anytime I can fob them off on somebody for an hour, Amy, honestly, I'm in. 
Sure. I mean, parents need breaks and that's okay. I mean, there's no judgment there at all. I mean, we're, we're the professionals. We know how to deliver this training. And so if we can do it and take that burden off of the parent, then let us do it. Absolutely. And we actually, we do it via Zoom as well. So for families who don't live near a center, they can get it over Zoom the exact same way. Um, like I we think send that would be disappointing for the kids, like just not as tactile as being. Well, there. it is actually. We send a set of materials to the house, ah. and so and then we have a tripod with a camera that faces down on the table, in addition to the Zoom camera, so the trainer can see the child's table at the same time they can see their face, and you're still interacting. You know, the high five is a little hard on the screen, um, but it's still there. But it is a viable option. Right. So yes, yes, in-person is phenomenal because especially for children who like to be in person, but it's a phenomenal viable option. Um, if you don't live near a center. That is so interesting. I love that. Um, well, I am excited. We will definitely have to have links to that in the notes and everything, because I think that as a parent, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, if we don't have one close by, then we will, we have an option because they, he is extremely tactile. So to help with my eye rolling, I'm not actually a horrible person. I might be, but not in this instance. It's my husband and I are extreme introverts and I'm not only an introvert. I'm a like, I'm not a hugger, Amy. I'm not. I'm my, like, I can love you just as much from, oh, from afar. Yeah. Just see you sitting there and be like, good job, little buddy. I don't need to touch. My oldest, on the other hand, is the single most extreme extrovert I have ever known in my life. All he wants all the time is people. All the people. Always people. And he's an extreme hugger. So he wants to like be touching all the people all the time. And I just like, I love him so much, but also (laughs) it's just really anathema to my being. My therapist says that he is a dog person and I am a cat person and that that is okay. (laughs) But the cats have a hard, harder time with dogs than dogs have with cats. (laughs) Yes. But know that every child needs physical touch for at least 10 minutes a day they get a lot more cortisol lower their cortisol levels increase their endorphins and so i'm an introvert as well and i have a child who's very touchy-feely and so you know i i just i remind myself my kid needs this just like he needs food the good news is that daddy is an introvert but he's a high touch introvert so daddy is all about extra snuggles mommy also like they get at least 10 minutes of contact from me every day. The little one is much more my kid. He's kind of like, I mean, you do you. I'm going to just be over here. I'm like, all right, my dude. Cool, cool. Over there. That's great. So they, they get touched. They get plenty of that. But if it was up to my oldest, he would always be in physical contact with one of us. And Amy, I just cannot. <laughs> just, I cannot. <gasps> Even a little bit, I cannot. Like hand holding, let's hold hands, buddy. And he's like, why hold hands when I could sit in your lap and crawl inside your shirt? Oh. <laughs> well. 
<laughs> because there are some uh, <laughs> how many boundaries are being crossed right rules. now? Right. <laughs> so many boundaries. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. It's oh, it's a lot. So I might suggest a weighted blanket for him. Okay. We had the advice, and I would really like to hear what you think about this. That those types that weighted blankets can be dangerous for little kids and so to wait until he was actually diagnosed but i mean i personally again the kid that can pick up his own mattress and whack his brother in the head with it i think is probably fine with a weighted blanket but you know i'm happy to hear it from a professional i mean <laughs> how much does he weigh 55 pounds 55 yeah so then he would so they say so i don't remember the is it 10 percent Mm -hmm. 10% of your body weight. Right. So he would need a light weighted blanket at 55 pounds, obviously, like one specifically for, um, I mean, so a five or six pound blanket. If he can pick up a mattress, then he can pull a six pound blanket off of himself. That's what I think. Um, yeah. I mean, yes, a 12 or 15 pound blanket on a 55 pound child might be more difficult to wrangle around in, but your six pound blanket is going to be. You don't fine. need a diagnosis to experience the calming benefit of that weighted blanket. I I use a weighted blanket. My kids use a weight. Well, of course we have diagnoses, but still, it's okay with me. So I I had heard that from people who had struggled that they did too many interventions beforehand, and that it made diagnosis harder and intervention stuff harder because they already had. Some things in place, some of which were not quite right, et cetera, et cetera. So mm -hmm. I, I just work here. <laughs> <laughs> I like, I'm always fascinated by things like that. When I hear things like that, that's like saying, don't try anything at home. Only let us tell you what to do. Really? You want to like remove the autonomy of parents by saying you're not qualified to help your own child? That's ridiculous. Uh, and yet, I, so, it, and it's not from medical professionals, it's from other parents or educators, those kind of folks who are like, hey, we've seen this go really badly. Just FYI, maybe let the professionals, because you're in the process, let the professionals do their thing and, then make changes like oh okay but if i could help tomorrow why would i wait till thursday i don't understand but that's yeah. you know. well and i would think that in the diagnostic process it would be helpful to know what you've already tried and how your child responded and so because that helps rule things out and it helps shape a treatment plan, right? Like what if you, what if your clinical psychologist wrote this treatment plan without having any information from you about what you've already tried and the treatment plan was everything you've already tried, what a waste of everybody's time. At definitely, I totally agree. Totally, mm -hmm. totally agree. I get so frustrated when people give advice like that. So frustrated. You're the mom. <laughs> And I am the mom, but I try to abdicate as much responsibility as possible. <laughs> <laughs> I try to make dad do it, aunties, grandparents, 
random people from church, Amy, I'm like, hey, would you like a child? Perhaps two. <laughs> Have a buy one, get one. <laughs> Great rental rates, please. We'll throw in a pit bull. <laughs> um, well, I uh, can't believe this, but we are already almost out of time. So what have I not asked you that I really should have asked? Um, well, I'm sure you want to know where people can find brain training. Yes, I do. Yes. So um, I work for an organization called Learning RX. And so that is um, all the information on Learning RX is available at learningrx.com. Um, or one eight six six brain zero one is our headquarters number, okay. um, and so calling that headquarters can get you connected to a center um, near you, um, or just ask questions. Great, and we will have all of that those details in the show notes as well because you've very nicely already provided those, so we've got that there. So and I have a podcast, <gasps> and she has a podcast. Of course, she has a podcast. Yes, it's called Brainy Moms. And we're on every podcasting platform and on YouTube. And so we um, interview experts in parenting and child development and child psychology and health and all topics related to being a mom. And we just want to make it a little bit easier and make moms feel a little bit smarter after they've listened. I love so. that. That's a great mission. Yeah. I, so we will have those links as well. Thank you so much, Amy. This has been wonderful. I really appreciate your time and all of your expertise. You made me feel much better about a couple of my choices and perhaps less good about some others, but that's all right. That's all right. <laughs> it's been very helpful. I appreciate it. <laughs> Cancel each other out, right? So let's go with yes. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Michelle, for having Thank me. You. Thank you. You've been listening to Hey, I Want Your Job. For more information on how you can get your own awesome job, visit ONH Consulting at www.onhconsulting.com. We offer incredible resumes, no-nonsense career advice, and real-world tips for landing a job in today's market. Check us out on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Insta for more insider information. Soon, you'll be hearing us say, I'm Michelle Olivier, and hey, I want your job.